This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by HP Wolf Security. Protect your work from home with a new breed of endpoint security. HP Wolf Security. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. As large-scale global cyber attacks and ransomware threats continue, the Biden administration has made clear that cybersecurity is a top priority. In this episode, Representative John Katkow, the ranking Republican leader of the House Committee on Homeland Security, and Jeanette Manfra, Director of Risk and Compliance at Google Cloud and former Assistant Secretary for Cybersecurity and Communications at the Department of Homeland Security, join Washington Post Live to highlight the importance of cooperation between the public and private sector to chart a path to securing cyberspace from endpoint security to comprehensive network security architecture. Let's listen. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Christina Passariello, the Washington Post technology editor. I'm delighted to be hosting this two-part series today about the future of cyber threats, an issue that both government agencies and private companies are trying to prepare for. My first guest today is the ranking member of the House Homeland Security Committee, Representative John Katko. Congressman, welcome to Washington Post Live. Well, thanks to having me I, for having me. I appreciate it. Well, we're really looking forward to this conversation. Let's start in with some news. Yesterday, Apple issued an emergency software update for a vulnerability that allows a highly invasive spyware to infect some of its products. What do you think um, it's important for our audience to understand about this vulnerability and discovery? Well, um, sadly, uh, I think the thing they need to understand most of all that it's it's uh, par for the course with, with respect to cybersecurity these days. Our systems on all levels are under attack at all times. And uh, I, I do think we're playing a bit of a whack-a-mole game trying to catch up instead of making sure we have better and more secure systems on the front end. And uh, I think I really do think that cybersecurity and cybersecurity attacks are probably the preeminent threat to our country on, in the homeland now. It, it's the modern it's a modern threat. and. Uh, Bad actors like China and bad actors like Russia uh, with their malicious intent, I think, is making this a, a, a far too common occurrence and there's much more we need to do. I mean, so far this year, we've had gas stations, schools, businesses, local government services all around the country shut down because of cyber attacks. So why have cyber attacks escalated so dramatically in the last couple of years? Well, I think the technological prowess of uh, uh, bad actors in Russia and China in particular are fueling it. And I also think that we have a system in the United States, at least with respect to cyber, that we have advances in cyber, and then we, but we don't have the state-of-the-art safety equipment to go along with it. It's kind of like making advances in cars and automobiles without worrying about the safety standards that, go along, that should go along with it. And I think we're constantly trying to play catch up with respect to those safety and security standards in the cyber realm. And that's a real problem. And you, you have uh, uh, the country of Russia itself uh, sanctioning basically these bad actors within their midst. But then you have, the, you have China itself, which I think is engaged in a lot of the state-sponsored cyber attacks, which is even more troubling. But our ability to keep up with that is, is, is not, the, not the answer. We need to go farther down the road. We need to have a better system and, and, and get the message out, especially to the C-suites uh, that um, 
We don't want to hear about a ransomware attack that devastates your business and all the things you're doing after the attack. We'd like to hear about and we'd like to help you with securing your, your, your entities so that we don't have these cyber attacks on the front end. Like Colonial Pipeline came to our office and told us all the things they were doing to harden their system. And, and, and uh, uh, I, I just thought to myself, well, that's great, but why did you not do this on the front end? And that's where uh, entities like CISA steps in and the National Cyber Director with Chris Inglis and uh, Jenny Easterly, the head of CISA, and Ann Newberger and others. They, you know, we have to um, have uh, an A-team of individuals and entities within government that are going to help the private sector, because it is a partnership, to, to get more secure. And obviously, we need to be more secure ourselves in the, the public sector, and it's going to cost money. And we need, we need to have more uh, well-defined roles, and we need to have... Uh, we need to have this team approach going forward. So, yeah, tell me a little bit more about how you see the public-private partnership working. As you alluded to, this is a disparate problem. There are, you know, the tech companies behind many of the other companies that are attacked. There's um, all of these government agencies, and there are these uh, large foreign governments, um, you know, who often have an adversarial approach. Uh, when it comes to cybersecurity, as you referenced. So what does that partnership well, look like for you? Look, it's an absolute team game. And and, and I guess based, I'm trying to, let me, let me try and use a, a football analogy, if you will. I, I look at CISA as kind of like the quarterback uh, of the .gov domain and also uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the, you know, the general uh, internet uh, sector in the country. And I look at um, uh, the defense department as special, uh, as like the, def the, the, the defense, uh, the defense of the team. And I look at the Intel community as like the special teams, and I look at the National Cyber Director as a head coach. Now that's kind of a rough analogy, but it fits. We all have a role to play, but we're all a team. And then we got to take that team and we have to interact on a regular and repeated basis with the private sector to not only get better, more real-time information about when these attacks occur, the nature and quality of the attacks, and what is the vital information that we can use to help protect other entities. That's number one. And so that's when they're attacked. But also, before they're attacked, better use and better dissemination of best practices. But also, they get the private sector. They have to invest more in those entities to make themselves more secure. They can't just sit there and hope and pray that they're not the next victim. They have to um, understand that they are going to be the next victim, assume they're going to be the next victim, and act accordingly. And um, with regards to, uh, you know, encouraging companies to disclose when attacks happen, um, do you think that that requires uh, regulation to make to ensure that that has, is happening? Yeah, I mean, we need to systematize that uh, to some extent. Um, I think that there is some uh, ways we can get mandatory reporting requirements uh, without uh, without having uh, uh, liability issues arise for companies. But uh, let's face it. Right now, CISA probably gets maybe 1% of the details regarding cyber attacks in this country. And it's very hard for them to understand the entire playing field when they don't have any details about what, what's on that playing field, right? So we have to figure out some way to get them, the private sector, to interact on a more reg regular and routine basis when there's attacks and what the nature and quality of those attacks are, the details, so they CISA can better act. We have to do that, and I think we can do it from a legislative standpoint or, or and or a regulatory standpoint, but we must respect the fact that businesses uh, have a lot more to do than just uh, maintain reporting requirements to federal government. So we got to figure out a way to streamline the process so it doesn't invade their 
uh, impede their ability to, to do their jobs. But on the other hand, this, this information is critical and um, that that's, uh, again, so we have, have to find a way to do that. And speaking of communication between the private sector and government, President Biden last month convened a cybersecurity summit at the White House with the CEOs of companies, including Apple, Google, IBM, and JP, JP Morgan Chase. What do you think needs to come out of these meetings between government and industry for the U.S. to be more effective at, at fighting cyber threats? Well, first of all, I applaud them for having the meeting and I, and I applaud them for elevating uh, uh, the cybersecurity issues that are uh, abundant in the United States. So having the summit in and of itself is a step in the right direction and getting everybody in the room is a step in the right direction. And, and, and uh, having them develop those partnerships that it can be so critical going forward are very important. So from that, I hope that there can be a level of trust between the private sector and the cybersecurity uh, uh, components of our federal government so that we can actually um, uh, take the next step and help make the systems more secure. And developing and figuring out a way to have better pipeline of, of, of exchanging of information and, and figuring out ways in which um, uh, CISA and the other entities can can better advise entities of attacks. I mean, I know we get a lot of attacks in the in the uh, in the intel community or a knowledge of potential attacks. So not always shared. We got to figure a way to make sure we share them. When we know if we know a threat's coming, we know a target is is uh, established. Like, you know, figuring a way to let them know without blowing our intel community uh, stuff, for example. But also making sure that there's just uh, stronger, better working relationships on a daily basis. There's task forces all over the country. That's a great start as well. And what it, what do you think is the next step in these meetings between the White House and the corporations? Are there are there future meetings that you think um, should be taking place? Should these be kind of a regular conversation? Oh, absolutely. They, they absolutely should be a regular conversation. And, uh, and this has got to be something that happens on a regular routine basis. It's kind of like when I was uh, head of the, um, uh, the the subcommittee on Homeland Security for oversight of TSA. We really beefed up their advisory council, and they have that type of an, that type of interaction on a regular basis with uh, different sectors in the TSA community and the private sector, interact on a regular basis with the government. Really helped uh, everybody get more on the same page as to airport security, the nature and quality of it, and how it should operate. The same concept, uh, however you want to uh, establish it, needs to be set in the cyber realm where there's routine and systematized exchanging of ideas and information uh, on, on that type of advisory committee type thing. So I think that's something going forward we should really think about. And what do you mean? That's something that Homeland Security, I'm, I'm sorry, I have to add, add this. It's something that we had oh, at Homeland ahead. Security and I think we need to reestablish that. I know that there were some concerns from a political standpoint. I understand that, respect that. That's your prerogative, but it's standing down right now. We need to reinvigorate that going forward. And I, I was just curious, what is your um, what is your view on Colonial Pipeline not having attended uh, that cybersecurity summit, um, even though you know it was the largest um, cyber attack so far this year? Well, um, uh, I venture to guess they're 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 uh, they're very focused on on hardening their systems. Um, I, I would sincerely hope they've learned their lesson. I don't know why they weren't there or whether they were even invited, but I do trust uh, that um, for themselves and for their shareholders that they have taken a very serious this attack and that they're gonna make sure that their systems are secure.
Representative, you've been drawing attention to this issue for quite some time. So um, how does the landscape of threats look different now compared to when you first started to champion the idea that government should step up to the plate to help protect against cyber threats? Oh, listen, there's no question. Since I've been in Congress, the landscape has dramatically changed. I mean, that's and I've only been in Congress. Uh, this, I'm on my seventh year. I'm on the fourth term now. And it's amazing to, to me how much of a, the threat landscape has changed. Think about it. When I was first in Congress, the biggest national security threats we had were uh, lone wolf attacks, uh, ISIS-inspired attacks on the homeland, and uh, those types of things. Now, those are, all, those are still a threat, but now it seems like every day there's a ransomware attack, there is um, a cyber attack uh, on, on a government entity. And I think the threat has metastasized many fold since we first started. So um, I think by by its very uh, nature right now in, in the, the current status, so we have to recognize that this is, the bad guys have figured out that uh, this is the easiest way to really screw with the United States, pardon my language, and to really um, uh, prepare for, uh, for the eventuality if there is a, a conflict between us and say China, for example, that you know the the malware that they have embedded in our critical infrastructure uh, could devastate us. And listen, we better make sure we have the same capabilities on their side. We got to do everything we can to harden our systems and look for that that embedded malware and try and make our systems more and more secure. Because Lord knows that the, the bad guys like Russia and China and they are bad actors. There's no question about that. We have to accept that and recognize that uh, that these bad actors want you know are ready to do us harm if and when the time comes, and we have to be prepared for that. You mentioned CISA, and you have co-sponsored a bill that um, seeks to establish a five-year term for its director. Tell us about why this is necessary. Stability, uh, plain and simple, stability. Uh, you know, look at the FBI director has has, a, has terms, similar terms, and others do, and we, I was able to get one for the TSA director, which uh, stabilize the agency. Listen, uh, before we got that bill in, at, at TSA, uh, in the first few years I was in Congress, there was six or I think six different directors of TSA, uh, some temporary and acting, some appointed. Um, but you need that stability in, in such a critical area of our, of, our, of our defense of our nation. And so to have that five-year term, I think is very important for the stability and to, to help cultivate the proper workforce. And I think having some key people underneath assistant director, having them have uh, non-political terms is, or non-political appointments, I think is really important as well. And we're working on that. And um, tell me a little bit about what the next steps are on that bill. Well, we got to, we, we, you know, hope springs eternal. You keep pushing it. And if it doesn't go right, it doesn't get this term. I'm going to keep it introduced until, introducing it until it gets passed. And if we can get it attached to another bill, uh, we're going to do that as well. We're, we're, we're constantly trying to push that because it's very important. All right. Um, I mean, CISA has taken on a wider array of responsibilities, including partnering with the TSA to impose new cybersecurity requirements for oil and gas pipeline and developing voluntary standards for other industries um, that, you know, that fall into the category of critical infrastructure. Can you speak a little bit more to um, how the government might mandate specific requirements for private companies? And are there particular industries that need special attention? Well, yeah, listen, there, there are absolutely uh, certain in industries that need special attention. So let's deal with that first. Um, and I have a bill that's uh, 
deals with systemically important critical infrastructure. And uh, right now, when we talk about critical infrastructure, it seems like everything's critical infrastructure. And if that's the case, nothing's really critical, right? Um, you have to really drill down and identify the real, true, systemically important critical infrastructure sectors and be laser focused on them first as a and say, look, if all else fails, we got to protect these systems, our electric grids, for example, right? Our, our pipelines and things like that. So my bill would basically charge CISA with identifying those, those important critical infrastructures. And I, I, I'm concerned with the term mandate on the other part of your question, because uh, the term mandate means it's a top-down approach. It can't be with, with this, 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 uh, this area of, uh, of, our, of our homeland security. It has to be more... Um, it has to be more uh, a collaborative in nature, right? And we have to do that. Now, listen, the private sector, whether corporations want to hear this or not, uh, is going to play a role in this, right? The private sector is going to be, um, uh, there's going to be lawsuits. Uh, and, and, and in the not too distant future, but it hasn't happened already, you're going to start seeing uh, corporations being held accountable. If they had shoddy cybersecurity practices and they, and uh, CISA, gave them information and intelligence or in, uh, uh, guidance on what, what are the most up-to-date, state-of-the-art uh, cyber defenses, and they didn't implement them, well, then, you know, they're going to answer to their shareholders in the court of law, in my opinion. So uh, I think having that collaborative nature is really going to be important going forward. And I think um, CISA also offers many tools where you can go to CISA or work with CISA. They'll come into your company or your entity, government entity, and they can basically do a cyber audit of your entity and tell you where your holes are and how to fix them. I just had a roundtable in Syracuse, New York, where we did that and we explained to the 50 or so stakeholders that were there, and we had CISA representatives, and a good healthy number of them already had CISA doing that. The others all signed up to have CISA do it. It's free and it can help you. It's all it's basically doing is saying, let's take a look at your network. Here's how you can make it better. And so that's, instead of mandating, I think we need a more collaborative effort going forward. Well, Representative, I know you've got to run to a vote, so let me just end with a quick audience question. From Sawyer sure. in Virginia, he asks, how do we hold threat actors accountable for their actions? Well, let me tell you something. I'm glad we brought this up, Sawyer. Thank you for doing that. Um, we've had a number of substantial attacks, some of which we can trace to China and some of which we can trace to Russia, or at least bad actors within Russia that are acting with impunity, which means the Russian government is, is, is at least turning a blind eye towards them. If you, I, I was a federal organized crime prosecutor for 20 years, right? If you don't fight bad guys with strength, they're gonna continue to be bad guys, bad actors, right? And we have done pretty much nothing uh, to Russia and or China uh, for, for what they've done. And uh, they have done some, they, they've had some devastating attacks in our country. And if we don't start fighting back and have real teeth and real sanctions and real repercussions, they're going to continue to do it. It's just kind of like when I took out gangs. You can't go into a gang territory and say, hey, guys, you got to cut it out. You got to go in there and whack the crap out of them. And once you did that, they understood you weren't kidding. And then the next gang uh, would, would be a little more uh, circumspect. We've got to start. Uh, we've got to start doing that. And I've also got several other pillars, which includes beefing up CISA and uh, establishing a better working relationship amongst the other agencies, making sure that CISA um, has, uh, is, a, is working in a collaborative manner and getting an exchange of information from the private sector, all the things we talked about. But I, make no mistake about it, if you don't have a real stick 
uh, for the bad actors. You're going to have you're going to this is going to continue to spiral out of control like it has. Well, Representative Katko, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Uh, we really appreciated this conversation. It went really fast. I'm happy to come back anytime and there's a lot more we can talk about, but thank you very much. Thank you so much. And I'll be back in a, in a moment with our next guest, Jeanette Man Manfra. Please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello everyone, this is Washington Post Live. My name is Chika Odua and I'm moderating this conversation. And we're talking all about cyberspace security. And we've got Mr. Stephen Periotti to guide us through this topic. Mr. Stephen is actually working as the cybersecurity architect for HP. He also works comfortably in the software and the hardware spaces. And he'll be talking to us about how businesses are navigating endpoint security with new hybrid work era systems. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Excellent. So I want to actually toss out a buzzword that we hear often when it comes to the topic of cyberspace security, and that word is user-induced zero-day. Can you just break down what that means for us? Yeah, it's, it's really simple. The users are being targeted with ever more sophisticated attacks today. And this creates internal breaches. One accidental action, especially in a well-trained and defended workforce, can create a dangerous breach or give a hacker a beachhead. In effect, it's a zero day. Now, with all the plans and all of the protection you have, if someone can get around those walls, they're going to go to the most cost-effective solution, which is fooling you into clicking a link. When you talk about solutions, can you talk about how AI has evolved to become a more viable solution in trying to secure cyberspace? Yeah, artificial intelligence and machine learning are very important tools that the um, criminal elements have picked up. And they use them now to uh, enhance older tool sets and to fool uh, unsuspecting users with very rich and important content. So these tools are so powerful that they can fool you into doing things that you otherwise uh, would think are safe and trusted spaces. So the word safe and trust, this gets into the realm of human psychology, right? So can you talk about how much one needs to understand about human psychology when trying to work in this very nebulous and esoteric space called cybersecurity? Right, so it's, it's the, the tools do one job, but the psychology of a user is quite another thing. And this new attack service of social engineering is essentially another programming language that the hackers are learning. And what they're learning to do is fool the user by extracting information, building a logical case, and penetrating on the virtues or the vices of a particular individual to click on a particular link. It's not as simple as go to your bank and check your statement. It could be as uh, nebulous as um, I got a link uh, from what I think is my mother, and I'm going to click on that link, and I'm or I want to do a donation to a worthy cause. These things are all uh, psychological pieces that can be used as triggers to create this internal breach. You mentioned social engineering and how it can be weaponized. How can it be used on the other side of the spectrum as a tool for our benefit? Yeah, so I think that one of the ways that we can do this is through isolation and protecting the uh, end user by making sure that these breaches are, aren't catastrophic and we can have them uh, isolated in a way that the transaction is disposed of. 
So in terms of how the user interacts with these attacks and how we can defend against them, we don't have to rely on detection. What we really rely on is isolation to prevent the incident from occurring. And can you talk about how governments can better protect their systems and, and their servers and what are the biggest gaps, knowledge gaps that you see? Well, first, it's it's understanding that detection isn't the only answer, that there has to be other alternatives in order to make success. And a lot of people feel that um, the tools that they have today do the job. Well, they don't. The stats prove they don't. So by understanding that there's a new attack surface in town and that people can be manipulated into these zero days, it, it's just another vector that you have to account for. And government should do the same. Can you mention the one thing that individuals, citizens, can do to protect themselves in the cyberspace arena? Yeah, be vigilant. Um, if you see something that you don't uh, really quite understand, or as simply as this, you, you get a link from your bank that says do something or a call to action, don't trust that link when you can easily just go to the website itself and perform the function. That's one example of how a user every day can defend themselves from these kind of attacks. But when these attacks are manipulated into a more formal attack, like when your CFO sends you a document and the hackers have learned this from LinkedIn that they're in your org chart, um, it, it, it's not something that you would even think is a problem. So be vigilant and in your personal life, do what you can, but in your corporate life, uh, really help uh, support the tools that are already put in place for you to be successful. Stephen, thank you so much. That was brilliant. I learned a lot. Well, thank, thank you. you so much for watching conversation back to the Washington Post and now back to Washington Post live hello and welcome back to Washington Post live for those of you just joining us I am Christina Passariello the Washington Post technology editor I now want to bring in Jeanette Manfra global director of risk and compliance at Google Cloud Jeanette welcome to Washington Post live there thanks so much for having me we're really looking forward to this conversation with you because you have been on both sides of this, having been with CISA and now at Google. So let's start with uh, the same topic I started with Representative Katko, which is this news yesterday from Apple, which announced that it had discovered um, you know, an exploit that allowed spyware to infect some of its products and issued a patch to close that. Um, tell us about how this most recent example of spyware speaks to the broader landscape of potential cyber threats. Sure, I think it highlights a couple of things. One is that um, we're very dependent on technology and users everywhere are dependent on it for everything from just your day-to-day -day communications to doing business to more sensitive. And that there is a variety of actors out there, both in the uh, government and uh, in the private sector who are seeking to abuse that uh, dependency and looking for ways to exploit that. And what do you think that, that consumers, users need to understand about this? Do you, and, and do you think that they are getting the message about doing something like updating their software? Yeah, I think for the most part, um, users uh, generally get the message on um, updating software. I think the important thing though is we need to make security easier for users. And, and, and so not make every fix the requirement of the user to enact. So, you know, for at Google, we're very focused on just 
eliminating entire classes of attacks so that they never impact our, our many, you know, 3 billion users of our um, Gmail and other services that we offer. And, and so I think that's a really important part of this conversation as well is it can't always be on the user to take all of the steps. We have to build that security invisible and to the user and to be able to continue to take away those classes of attacks and those opportunities for exploitation. But also as the average user, yes, you need to know that you're, you're a target. And a lot of people um, assume that they're, you know, I'm not important enough to be a target. I'm not doing sensitive enough work to be a target. Everybody can be a target. And, and these days you have to understand what is what am I doing with my digital devices, whether that's personally or in business, and am I doing everything I can to secure um, my, uh, my information? Now, this seem, yes, such important topics and um, so much for, for consumers to, to understand about, about these threats to the, our devices. Let's talk a little bit about the um, public-private uh, communication that's going on right now. So Google participated in the White House's cybersecurity meeting last month. Um, in your opinion, what did that meeting achieve? You know, I think these these types of meetings um, or summits are really important to um, to get the most senior leaders from government and the most senior leaders from the private sector together to share experiences, to share perspectives, so that we understand where each other are coming from and to set uh, to set tangible goals for ourselves. So Google committed to $10 billion in security investments, a chunk of that going towards open source security. We also committed to, um, to training 100,000 Americans in our Google's uh, career certificates programs. So, so really tangible things that we need to get done in addition to sharing these perspectives. Of course, the work needs to continue at the level of myself and others in government and to continue to operationalize that partnership and to continue uh, stretching and, and making sure that we're doing everything we can as a, as a collaborative group. Um, did the meeting help facilitate more communication between uh, the companies as well? So not just between um, public and private, but also within the industry? That's a really great point. I think also it's important to make sure that you have folks from the tech sector and folks from the electricity sector and others kind of who broadly represent infrastructure across the globe in many cases that are talking to themselves about these broader national security, national risk issues and, and what can we do amongst ourselves as industry. And so I think you know events like the summit as well as, as other um, events that are hosted either by nonprofits or, or uh, private sector, it's really important to continue to have that, that high level dialogue and that industry is talking amongst themselves as well. And so what are the next steps um, after that summit? Are there plans for, um, you know, the companies to meet again, um, maybe virtually? Well, many of the companies that were represented there already have deep partnerships and, um, and you know, continue, will continue to meet. Uh, we'll, as um, Representative Catco discussed, there's um, initiatives by CISA to bring industry together. And, and so I think a lot of those efforts will continue. I think where, um, where we're going to see some change is, is really focusing on um, driving down some of these national risk issues. So it's not just let's share more information more broadly about threats, which has been a lot of the conversation over the past decade plus, at least that I've been involved in this. And it's more about 
this is a risk that we need to be concerned about as a community. Let's work together to eliminate or significantly reduce this risk. And, and those organizations, whether that's an industry or industry and government together that have the capabilities to do that, I think you'll see a lot more partnership around that, both industry on its own, but also industry and facilitated by the government. That's, that's really interesting. Um, I mean, to that point, you know, Google competes fiercely against the, you know, the two other big cloud providers, AWS and Microsoft. But when it comes to cyber threats, like to what extent do you have to set that competition aside and collaborate? Yeah, I think, you know, I, I said it in government and I, and I still believe it's true, is you shouldn't compete on access to information. And, you know, we, our threat analysis group puts out about 4,000 warnings uh, a month, I believe, to our users on threats that are targeting uh, our, our users. And I know our competitors do similar things. We also, you know, we do work in different forums to be able to, to share that information as it's relevant. So there's, there's plenty to compete on, um, but industry and government should make sure that those who can take action on information should have access to that information and shouldn't be hiding it for competitive reasons, which I, I don't believe Google does. Okay, and, and, and speaking of access to information, um, you know, there's this Senate bill that would require federal contractors to report attempted cyber breaches within 24 hours. Does Google support that bill? You know, I don't have um, specific opinion about the legislation itself. What I would say more broadly is um, sort of echoing what Representative Kako was talking about is when you start talking about mandatory reporting and mandatory measures, particularly in cybersecurity, it is a bit of a slippery slope. I will say it is important that particularly if you are providing a service to the federal government, they're the customer, you should have, uh, you should be telling them what's happening on the systems that they're depending upon. And if the, if the government doesn't feel that they're getting what they need, then they need to, uh, they, they need to find ways to make that happen, whether that's contractually or through, through other mechanisms. I think that the challenge sometimes with legislation and, and in terms like mandatory is it becomes, less of a, a risk-based approach and more of a, how do I you know, make sure I'm um, strictly in compliance with this requirement here? And, um, and, and so I think generally, um, you know, more uh, sharing of incident information is good. I don't know that mandating it um, through legislation is always the best idea, but happy to continue to work with uh, Congress and the government on shaping this. And speaking of legislation, um, Representative Katko's bill pushing for the CISA director to be a five-year position. What do you think about that move? Are you supportive of that proposal? You know, I think it's a great idea to make sure that the CISA leadership endures beyond changes in administration. I think the, the role of CISA is very apolitical. And, um, and it has been demonstrated over multiple administrations as, um, as being able to focus on the security and safety of our cyber and other critical infrastructure. So I think it's I think it's a really important um, it's it's a really important move to be able to have a director of that organization that um, that it, that is durable um, and, and isn't sort of subject to political changes. Mm -hmm. Um. 
So you've said before that one of the exciting things for you in leaving the government and joining the private sector was to get closer to the companies uh, that are the architects for these security systems. So now being on the private side of the issue, what do you wish you had known about the private sector's role um, when you were still with CISA? You know, I think what I, there's probably a whole lot of things <laughs> that I wish I would have known. One of the things that I, I don't think you can truly understand until you're in, um, in the private sector is just the very different things that I have to balance to manage the, the risk to the company, the, um, the ability to make a profit is very important, right? We want our companies to be healthy. Um, there's, there's a lot that goes into that, particularly at very large, large scale organizations like Google, like many of our competitors, where you're a multinational organization. And so, you know, you knew these things when you were in government to, but to really be living it every day. Um, you know, in my job, I have to think about um, risk and, and compliance and regulations globally um, and how that impacts our customers. It's, um, it, it's just, it's a very significant uh, issue that companies have to deal with. And I don't think I fully appreciated um, how challenging that could be for, for companies um, in balancing all of these different needs that they have to satisfy when I was, uh, when I was in government. And, and on the flip side, um, what do you think that the private sector would benefit from knowing better about it, what it's like to be in CISA? I think, I think the private sector, it, well, it depends. I always hate to sort of characterize the private sector as one big monolithic entity. Um, but I, I think in many ways, the, um, the private sector um, thinks of the government as a bit of a black box. And, um, and this is something I think the government is continuing to, to work on, but I, I hope that continues. Um, more transparency at a very, like an operational level, like kind of what I talked about is what I didn't understand on the private sector side. I think private sector doesn't really understand what the trade-offs and, and all of the different things that a, a government agency is trying to balance to be able to make sure that they're sort of, in the case of CISA, their primary mission of reducing national risk and, and in, in reducing the risk, particularly around national security, is, is a very challenging place. And in particular, thinking about all the different authorities that the government has, you hear a lot of private sector folks talk about, um, well, you know, you have 7,000 different agencies all doing different things, I can't navigate it. Well, a lot of that is, um, is actually helpful that you have different agencies with different authorities to do different things. Um, but it can be somewhat confusing to the private sector. And if you haven't lived it every day, like I did in the government, um, it can be sort of um, uh, almost overwhelming, you know, well, who's, who's responsible for what? So I think on the government side, you know, more transparency, more involvement on operational issues like the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, um, more explanation of why these different agencies have different roles and how you see that play out in a, say, in a response scenario or, or something like that, I think is important to kind of continue to deepen this uh, understanding. So speaking of all of those different roles within the government, let's go to our audience question. Um, this question is from Mike in Massachusetts, who asks, please articulate the roles executive branch agencies can play in fostering and perhaps leading comprehensive public-private collaborations. 
Sure. So when it, I'm going to take this in the context of, of cyber. Um, there's there's many agencies that have roles in, in other um, threat and safety scenarios. But you know, from what I think was really important over the past couple of years, in addition to the formal establishment of the Cyber and Infrastructure Security Agency, it's also having CISA, as I think Representative Katko referred to it as, as that quarterback, and, and making sure that while there are reasons that the FBI needs to have private sector collaboration, and because we want them being able to hold these bad actors accountable, right? We want people to end up in jail or have other, um, you know, accountability uh, pressed on them. So the FBI might have to have those private sector collaboration opportunities. Um, other organizations in the intelligence community and in um, the Department of Treasury, there's the Department of Energy, there's a lot of examples where you would want the government and the private sector to collaborate on very specific issues. But having CISA, as that sort of overarching group that is facilitating it all to make sure that you don't have a kind of a, a connect the dots scenario, right? Where you had one group working on one issue, another group over here working on something and there was no connection, so we missed something. And, and having that national cyber director in that group there to, to really kind of oversee and making sure that that's happening. I think those are really important policy um, policy establishments over the last few years. And um, and I really look forward to the Biden administration kind of continuing to operationalize that over the next uh, couple of years. And I had asked um, Representative Katko about, um, you know, why these cybersecurity threats have, have accelerated so much in the last few years. I'm curious, um, your perspective in particular on the pandemic. What way has the pandemic and the way that the pandemic has changed how we work, how we go to school, how we live, uh, what role has the pandemic played in um, cyber threats and in cyber attacks? Well, I think on the first order, you have actors who want to take advantage of that. And so they, um, you know, they can um, take advantage of any kind of negative scenario, a hurricane or where they um, uh, pretend and social engineer and pretend that they're, um, you know, there to collect information for your insurance. Um, and so there's there's a lot of impersonation and social engineering that typically happens when you have these significant events. And so that's sort of one area. I think the the really the, the largest thing that a lot of folks, especially in the early days of the pandemic, when people just weren't ready to um, to manage the technical aspects of nobody working in the building anymore. Um, so Google, we were um, in, in many ways very lucky because we had built um, in, in, in infrastructure that supported something we call zero trust, where it doesn't matter where you're working, you can have the same security capabilities in place without the use of a VPN. Many organizations didn't have that. So they were depending on um, tools that were not meant to be for a sustained, decentralized workforce. And so again, actors taking advantage of that, looking to exploit VPN connections, um, you know, probably security tools weren't um, largely able to keep up with the with that change in how they um, how the users access systems. So I think for for many months you had. Um, in our case, many customers, um, but I know sort of even beyond Google customers, of folks really scrambling to, you know, to take that like 10-year zero trust journey, but to do it in, you know, 10 months instead. And so I think those are some of the ways that actors uh, ex exploited the situation that we've been in over the past uh, year and a half now.
Well, um, such an interesting point to end on. Um, Jeanette Banfrat, I'm afraid that's all time we have for today, but thank you so much for joining us. It was a wonderful conversation. Thank you for having me. And thank you to everybody else for joining us today at Washington Post Live. I'm Christina Passariello. Please check out what interviews we have coming up. Head to WashingtonPostLive.com to register and find more information about all of our upcoming programs. Thanks again. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.